Well, good morning. I was talking with Pastor this morning. I was trying to figure out the. I can't remember the date we presented here, but it was two years ago. Uh, our family presented the ministry the Lord's called us to two Januarys ago. Um, so it's been a while since we've been here. I told our kids on our way here, you probably won't remember this church uh, because this was our third deputation meeting when we first started deputation. So it's been a while. Um, but we have really appreciated your prayers. We've gotten emails from some of you um, and very thankful for the connection with this church. You may remember my wife and I grew up here. Um, my wife was born and raised in Lyons. My family moved up here for my dad to be the pastor of Sunnyside Baptist in uh, North Rose, New York. I was eight years old when we moved here. So we grew up together in the same church. We are upstate New Yorkers. We aren't New Yorkers. We're upstate New Yorkers. There is a difference, and you know that. <clears throat> That's right. <laughs> if you would please this morning turn in your Bibles to the 40th Psalm. We're going to be in Psalm number 40. And if I can just begin by reading a verse from the New Testament this morning, this, is, this really isn't even an introduction just to kind of direct our thoughts towards Scripture. And you could all probably quote this verse with me, but I'll just read it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And Paul is not just talking about our New Testaments, right? He's talking about all Scripture, Old and New Testament. So when we come to Psalm number 40, there is a purpose for this psalm. It's going to be either doctrine, reproof, correction, or instruction in righteousness, or a combination of those four. So would you consider with me, as we go through this Bible study, in what way is this psalm speaking in your heart? One of those four ways. Pastor already read the psalm. I won't read the entire psalm, but we will kind of work our way through it. If you just glance with your eyes down through Psalm 40, you'll notice that David talks about himself a lot. Um, this psalm can be kind of considered almost like a diary. David refers to himself 42 times in 17 verses. Every single verse in this psalm, except for two verses, David refers to himself. Verse, 14, verse 4 and verse 16, there's no mention of David referring to himself. So David's talking a lot about himself. And you may have a title above this psalm. I've titled the message, Perseverance in Trial. The title in my Bible above the psalm is Faith Persevering in Trial. You may have a similar title in your Bible. And that's the main idea of this psalm. <clears throat> Persevering in Trial. But if you were listening as Pastor read, David doesn't actually talk about persevering through a trial until after halfway through the psalm. And what I'd like us to do this morning is, is apply this to our own lives 
Every person in this room has gone through a trial. You may have gone through a really hard trial this past year. You may be looking ahead at this year and expecting to go through a certain trial, whether it's financial, a strained relationship, physical, spiritual. We've all gone through these hard times. And like David, who had his share of these, we should approach these trials a certain way. And that's what David does in this psalm. He doesn't immediately start talking about the trial. He approaches this trial a certain way. And I'd like to consider three things this morning that we should do when we come to these trials. Because sometimes, I'll say many times, these trials catch us off guard, don't they? They are emergencies. We don't see them coming. Our first reaction is sometimes a knee-jerk reaction. So what God's people should be doing is we should be developing in our minds a habit of responding to these trials a certain way to where when we are caught off guard, we respond immediately in a scriptural way. So let's imagine we're in David's shoes when we have something in life that we need to be delivered from, we should have a certain first reaction. And it's what David begins the psalm with. Look at verse 1 with me. David said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. What's David doing? David is remembering a past deliverance from a trial. And you can imagine how important that would be in our own lives. Number one, we need to remember past deliverances. Verse one informs us that, that, you know, this is a believer speaking. We can probably say that no unsaved person will ever say, I waited patiently for the Lord. You don't find, you don't find believing people waiting patiently for the Lord to deliver them from something. This is a saved man. These are the words of a believer. And notice that David does not mention in these first three verses what it was that he was delivered from. Look at the three verses. David never mentions what God delivered him from. Why is that? Well, we don't know for sure, but we can imagine one of the reasons if David said, I waited patiently for the Lord to deliver me from suffering the results of my sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. I waited patiently for the Lord to deliver me from my own son, Absalom, who is seeking my life. I waited patiently for the Lord to deliver me from Saul, the king of Israel, who is trying to kill me. If that was in verse 1, what would we do? I would be tempted to almost shut myself away from the rest of the psalm because it doesn't apply to me. My son James has never tried to kill me. Sometimes it seems like it when we're wrestling. 
but he does, he's never tried to kill me. I've never had to run for my life from a government leader. And maybe what the Holy Spirit is doing is keeping David from specifying what he was delivered from so that the rest of this psalm can apply to all of God's people. How many of you have ever been delivered from something by God? We all have. If, if we were to take the rest of the time this morning to kind of have an open mic discussion and every person comes up and shares just this past year the hard times that we've gone through and how God brought us through, we would take up the rest of our time. We've all been delivered from things. And when we enter into a new time of testing, our first reaction needs to be, God delivered me before. Remember past deliverances. So thinking about our struggles that we need delivered from, that we are praying to be delivered from, our first reaction needs to be remember. Remember past deliverances. And then number two, verses four and five, David says, Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Number two, and this is very broad, trust God, not the world. David really talks about this in verse 4. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud. Hopefully, when a trial begins in our lives, this is one of our first reactions. Trust God. But what if the deliverance from this trial takes a very, very long time? Sometimes we do go through something very hard and it's over in a matter of days. But what if we're going through something very hard and it's weeks before we're delivered or months or years? There may be someone in this room who has been dealing with a trial for years. What if God chooses not to deliver us right away? What is your reaction? What if God says, wait, suffer for a while? Is my reaction what, is what David says in verse 1, wait patiently? Unfortunately, sometimes, I know for myself and maybe you, my reaction is to compare my current life struggle with the prosperity of unsaved people. And that's what David is mentioning in verse 4. Blessed is the man that does not respect the proud. This is something that Job warns us about. And if, it's, and if there's ever anybody who has authority on going through a trial, it's Job, right? Please turn with me to Job chapter 21. We're going to read through a portion of this. And I'm going to keep closer attention to the time. You may remember when we presented here, I spoke for Sunday school, the adult Sunday school class. And for whatever reason, I was keeping the eye on the clock. 
But I misread the clock halfway through Sunday school, and I realized I only had like five minutes left, and I was only about a third of my way through my notes. So I wrapped it all up, closed very awkwardly. And after I prayed, I looked up, and I was done half an hour early. Um, so I'm going to be looking at my watch and the clock this morning. So that doesn't happen again. In Job chapter 21, this is after, you're familiar with the life of Job. God allows Satan to take a lot of things away from Job. Possessions, all of his children. And then Job's friends come to him, and much of the book of Job is his friends counseling him. If you want to call it counsel. Verse, chapter 21, Job replies to his friends after they've counseled him. Verse 1, then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak and after I have spoken, then you can keep mocking me. As for me, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember I am terrified and trembling takes hold of my flesh. Why? Here, David, I'm sorry, Job begins to compare his life circumstance with the prosperity of wicked people. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight. They don't lose their children like Job did. Their offspring before their eyes, their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bulls breed without failure. Their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth. Have you ever wondered that? Why are so many unsaved people we know, why do they have all the money they need? And we don't. And in a moment, they go down to the grave. What Job is saying is they spend their whole life in ease and death is a very brief experience for them. They don't suffer. Yet they say to God, and this is the natural reaction for an unsaved person who lives a prosperous life, they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What profit do we have if we pray to him? We have everything we need. Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. And Job says the counsel of the wicked, this is what David is saying in Psalm 40, the counsel of those people, the wicked, is far from me. Sometimes God allows a trial in our lives to last a long period of time, and it's extremely hard. What we are tempted to do is compare our circumstances with the prosperity of wicked people. Satan has been trying to impress God's people with the lifestyles of the world since the earliest book in our Bible was written. 
It's believed that Job is the oldest book in our Bible. It was written before Genesis. And here we have Satan trying to impress a suffering follower of God with the prosperity of wicked people. It's been happening ever since the book of Job. It's been happening ever since Adam and Eve. And Satan tries to do it to us as well. I'll turn back in Psalm 40. How do we combat this? You may have been tempted like this, as I have. David says in verse 5, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Trust in the many wonderful works of God. That is what the unsaved people do not have. Now, in light of our trials, number one, what are we supposed to do? Remember past deliverances. Number two, trust God, not the world. We come to number three, proclaim his deliverances. Look at with me in verse three, and then we'll jump to verses nine and ten. Verse three of Psalm 40, he has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Verse 9. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness. This is David's reaction from deliverance. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. <clears throat> o Lord, you yourself know, I have not hidden your righteousness with my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. We often <clears throat> begin evangelism. And, and you can probably come up with a conversation you've had in the past trying to talk to somebody about Christ. We often begin these conversations with proving who God is, right? We feel like we have to stop, start there. If we're going to convince these people that salvation is what they need, they need to know who God really is. But maybe in these conversations, we should be speaking more about what God does. Not just who he is. We may often evangelize people who are miserably desperate for something in life. Probably some of you have talked to somebody like this. They are very low in their present life circumstances. Jesus did this. He spoke to the woman at the well. John chapter 4. This woman had a miserable living condition. She was rejected by her own people. That's why she went to the well in the middle of the day. And yet Jesus offered her and gave her living water. The next chapter in John, John chapter 5, he spoke with the man at the pool of Bethesda, who had an infirmity for 38 years. And he was groping for a chance to reach that pool to be healed. Year after year after year. A miserable condition. And Jesus tells him, get up and walk. And he healed the man. There may be times where we evangelize people in this kind of living condition. But probably, unless you target these people... Most of the people 
that we reach are like the rich young ruler who Jesus spoke with. He had everything he needed. Didn't think he needed anything else to get to heaven. Most of our conversations will probably be with people who think they have everything they need. Like the people Job spoke about in Job 21. What do we say to people like this? To people who say, I don't need God. What benefit would I have from worshiping God? I have a good retirement set up. I have a two-car garage. I have a heated floor in my two-car garage. I have the newest boat, vehicle, whatever. I have everything I want. How do we, what do you say to someone like that when you are trying to convince them of their need of salvation? What we say to these kinds of people, because these kind of people also suffer trials. They also go through tough times. But what they don't have in those times is spiritual comfort. They don't have spiritual strong ground, as it were. What do they do when they go through a hard time? They go to their stuff. Many of them trying to try to drown out their suffering with alcohol to numb their feelings. Believers should be able to proclaim peace in a time of storm because we have experienced this. And that's what we can share with people who, who suffer trials while thinking they have everything they need. They will never have peace in a time of storm without Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to offer them. And I'll end this third point with a question. How can an unsaved person... Think about this. How can an unsaved person be interested in who God is if they don't hear from God's people about what he does? What does God do for you in a trial? All we have to do is remember past trials to find out. So number one, remember past deliverance. Number two, trust God, not the world. Number three, proclaim his deliverance publicly we all have this to share with unsaved people so what did david want delivered from he hasn't mentioned that yet he's reviewing but he still has yet to get to what he wants delivered from in psalm 40 well again let's put ourselves in david's shoes think about your own trials when we when we think about a trial we usually think about something in one of three categories Financial struggles, health issues, strained relationships. That's usually what we think of when we think of trials. But if I can just mention that the Psalms very rarely mentions these three issues. David very rarely mentions financial struggles, physical issues. Every now and then he mentions a strained relationship. But these are the things that we usually desire deliverance from. Look at verse 12 with me. This is when David starts to talk about his own struggle. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. What's David asking God to deliver him from? 
his own flesh, his own sin. And you just have to do a, a brief review with the life of David to find out, yeah, that guy needed help. Yeah, well, so do we. We all feel like this at times. If you are in this room and you are a believer, you know what it's like to struggle with your flesh and just desperately want delivered from that. David asks God to deliver him from his own flesh over and over and over in the collection of Psalms. And notice what he says about his flesh. My iniquities have overtaken me. How is this possible in the life of a believer? They have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. He can't see straight. When I think of this, I think of when I was a kid in the playground of the church where my dad's pastored. There's a merry-go-round, an old wooden merry-go-round. I love roller coasters, but I cannot stand just going in circles over and over and over again. I get motion sickness. I don't know why. I love flying in a bush plane. I've been in bad weather in a bush plane. It doesn't bother me. But it's the constant circling, circling of emotion that bothers me. When I was 10 or 12, um, some friends of mine and my younger brothers, we would go down to the playground and, and four out of the five of us would all pile on the merry-go-round. And the fifth person would sling that thing around and around as fast as he could. The contest was the last person to drop off wins. And I remember very clearly being the first one almost every time to drop off. And I would lay down in the ground with my eyes closed, facing the sky, and I could still feel like I was spinning round and round and round and round. My eyes were closed. I wasn't moving, but I could feel like I was spinning round and round. And then I would open my eyes, and oh, the trees were moving. And the clouds were circling. I felt sick. And as soon as I stood up and took a step, I fell down. I couldn't see straight. I couldn't look up. And that's what David is saying his own sin is doing to him. Have you ever felt like that with your flesh? Of course you have. David says, my iniquities are more than the hairs of my head. Which, by the way, God has numbered. He's promised that. Therefore, my heart fails me. David is seeking deliverance from his flesh. And then there's another thing that we can mention about this. David, again, mentions in verse 1, I waited patiently. Friends, we will never, as God's people, we will never be fully delivered from our flesh until the day we die or Christ comes back. This is a constant struggle in the life of a Christian. As we are being sanctified, hopefully that struggle will become less and less, but we still struggle. Are you waiting patiently for God to deliver you? Secondly, David is seeking deliverance from God's enemies. Verse 14, let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them... Be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. David is praying to God and seeking deliverance from God's enemies. Same people as we see in verse 4, David mentions the proud. 
And this is a very common theme in Psalms. God's enemies are mentioned over a hundred times in the collection of Psalms. Jesus warns believers in John 17. I'm sorry, before John 17, Jesus warns his followers that they will face his enemies as they follow him. What's our reaction of that? Well, you don't have to turn here, but I'm going to read two verses in John chapter 17. As you know, well, John 17 is our Lord's prayer to his father. It takes almost the entire chapter. And there's a portion of this prayer where Jesus prays on behalf of not just his disciples, but he mentions all those who come to faith. Jesus says, I have given them, my followers, I have given them your word. And guess what? Jesus says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. And then Jesus says something very interesting. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Don't necessarily deliver them from your enemies. But that you should keep them from the evil one. That's our Lord's prayer on our behalf. When we run from God's enemies who mock us, who intimidate us. And we face God's enemies wherever we go. Jesus does not necessarily pray that we would be delivered out of this world, but that we would be protected from our own flesh when facing this trial. So how do we close this psalm? Well, we all go through these trials, right? How, how do we close this thought process? Well, probably the same way David closes the psalm. Let's read verses 16 and 17. Look with me, the last two verses of the psalm. David says, Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Is this your reaction? The Lord be magnified. Verse 10, Jesus mentions, I declared your faithfulness. I have not concealed your loving kindness. Those are the works of God. That's what we have to share with people. What we have to tell people is, the Lord be magnified. No unsaved person would say this. We are called to say in the midst of our trial, the Lord be magnified. And then this is very special what David says in verse 17. I am poor and needy. Have you ever felt like that? I am poor and needy. Yet in that state, David says, the Lord thinks upon me. Friends, the Lord thinks about you. Our Lord thinks about us. In fact, he prays for us to his Father. You are my help and my deliverer. And then David gives one last plea to be delivered. Do not delay, oh my God. What's our reaction? 
I'll go through the three points again, then add a fourth, and we'll be done. I need to remember to, number one, remember. Remember past deliverances. Trust God, not the world. Proclaim his deliverance. And number four, while I wait patiently for him to deliver me from my flesh and his enemies, I need to be committed to God being magnified. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you so much that oftentimes you take a rod to the life circumstances of your people. And we are told in the book of Hebrews that that rod is meant for our own spiritual growth, our own sanctification. We see that in the life of Job. And Lord, our fleshly reaction as we struggle with our flesh, our reaction is to doubt you. The world says, how can God be good and allow these things to happen? And that can be our temptation. Oh, Father, our prayer is that you, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit indwelling in our hearts, that you would cause us to seek your glorification in the midst of these trials. Father, we don't know what we will face this year. We don't know the rods that you will apply to our lives this year. But our prayer is simply that you would prepare us through the reading of your word and our own growing and sanctification and that we would not dishonor you. We pray in these things in your son's precious name. Amen.